From deep inside the vaults of the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music, here is Tom Holmes, your curator and guide to vintage electronic music and audio experimentation. episode electronic literature faith you know on the winds and become shivalrous a very dirty composer. For this episode of the podcast, I want to explore some of the ways that electronic musicians have brought literature and poetry to life through music. All of the works heard in this episode have origins in the printed word, whereas poetry, fiction, and drama can be read on the page... Music can be used to provide an entirely new dimension to language. Electronic music can be used to provide a provocative background to words, some atmosphere, if you will. But it can also be used to explore the sonorities of language itself, transforming it, multiplying it, and allowing words to communicate in heightened ways. First, I want to run down each track we're going to hear and briefly provide my reasoning for including it. There are so many more equally interesting works out there that I could possibly include in this podcast, so I invite you to explore the world of electronic music and literature further. A good place to start would be with the composers included here. The playlist for this episode explains each track and identifies the literature being used in each case. We begin with a tape piece from 1958 by Luciano Berrio. It's called Thema, Amagio a Joyce. It is based on a passage from James Joyce's Ulysses. The vocalist is Kathy Berberian, Berrio's wife at the time. This was produced in the RAI Electronic Music Studio in Milan, Italy, one of the key European studios of the 1950s. The work is an exercise in classic tape manipulation of recorded sound. This release on the Philips label is shorter than the one released around the same time on the Turnabout label in the United States. It omits the spoken sequence at the beginning where Berberian recited the words prior to having them modified electronically. This is a classic example of working with recorded sound to transform it into an abstract expression of itself. About the same time that Berio was making Amagio a Joyce, John Cage and David Tudor were staging a performance that Cage called Indeterminacy. Indeterminacy was not so much a Cage musical composition, for example, it is not, it is not listed in his catalog of composed works, as much as a way to combine readings from Cage's collected anecdotes to some electronic music performed at the same time by David Tudor. This was often a way that they closed their lecture and performances. 
So what you will hear is John reading some stories, often pausing according to the pre-planned timings he applied to the material using chance operations, and Tudor making music at the same time. This is followed by a performance of Roar Atorio, an Irish circus on Finnegan's Wake, a radio play produced in Germany in 1979 for voice, tape, and any number of musicians, optionally on tape. Here, Cage reads passages from Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. The score does not specify the book Finnegan's Wake, so it can be applied to any work of literature. These two examples, indeterminacy and roratorio, represent the use of language with other sounds, often one obscuring the other. After 1979, Cage became interested in greater extensions of the spoken word, but without accompaniment. Both of these works are quite long in entirety, so I chose 10 minutes from each to showcase here. Next, a brief sojourn into Shakespeare. Back in the early 60s, the BBC produced a series of recordings of Shakespeare. For each recording, incidental music and sound effects were provided on tape by the Radiophonic Workshop. In this short example, we'll hear actor Richard Burton and the electronic music of Desmond Leslie. This is purely programmatic music, having a supporting role for the actors, but I think you'll see that the music creates a marvelous atmosphere for the drama. Then we'll hear some contemporary poetry in a section of Music for the Quiet Hours by Sam Shackleton and vocalist Vengeance Tenfold. The poetry is spoken and modified, with delay, for example, but not unrecognizably. In a way, the words are hung out to dangle on a very strong bass line, which pulls them together as you listen. The next work is from the outstanding artist Lily Grenham. She was Danish by birth, moved to Vienna, and then to the UK, where she recorded experimental text sound works. She was first a poet, and then got into producing experimental music with her words. She called this work lingual music, noting that these works were distinct from her conventional poetry because they could not be performed live. Traffic, the piece we're going to hear here, dates from about 1972 to 1975. Grenham loved using tape loops to introduce patterns that would materialize and disintegrate as you listened to her music. Like the burial work, this piece strongly abstracts the words and provides another dimension of meaning as they are spoken. Anne Clark is another poet-turned-musician. Her first album, The Sitting Room, featured these two works, Swimming and An Ordinary Life. This was accompanied by the haunting synthesizer sounds and vocal effects, again underscoring the impact of the language that you can still understand. Now we come to a couple of additional dramatizations of famous literature, We'll hear a portion of Journey to the Center of the Earth by Rick Wakeman, based on the novel by Jules Verne. Note the mini-moog part about midway through and the strange bass line under the melody. I'm not sure if that was intended or uh, some evidence of an uh, equipment glitch, but it's very cool. This was a live performance. Creating music based on literature apparently was a thing in the UK in the mid-70s. So we bring you the Alan Parsons Project version of The Raven. This is taken from an album called 
tales of mystery and imagination and captures some of the words from the story by Edgar Allan Poe. Next up is Silver Apples from their first album in 1968. The track Dust is one of the poems that they produced for this album. The electronic sounds were created by a collection of audio oscillators modified by guitar pedals and all mixed together. This album was a standout at the time and also strange in comparison to rock and roll that was also happening. While the Silver Apples had aspirations of being rock stars, their music was really much more experimental. From the world of contemporary classical music, we have Alice Shields. Her work is Study for Voice and Tape. This was based on a poem by Alice and produced at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center in 1968. She used her pre-recorded singing voice synchronized with electronic sounds on tape, often a technique used at that time. A boucle synthesizer was the source for much of the electronic sound. This work trades similarities and contrasts of the singing voice with electronics. Then we will hear three poems of Gunter Grass, part one by Ronald Pereira. In this work, the poem is read and then sung to the accompaniment of electronic sounds and a small instrumental ensemble. Note the contrast to Shields' work, which uses the voice and electronics more abstractly, whereas Shields' work blends the sounds of the voice and electronics. The Pereira work uses the electronics more as a supporting background for the poem. Then we have Europa, by John Hill, with a poem by Ian Michaels that is read by Susan Christie. This is from a never-released album created in 1970, so the sounds of the Moog modular synthesizer will be familiar to you. This is pretty much a straight reading with electronic accompaniment. Finally, I am delighted to feature four short tracks from Ruth White and her album Flowers of Evil from 1969. Ruth programmed the Moog modular, which she owned, composed the tape, and even translated and read the poems by Char Bollier. Ruth pretty much worked on her own, self-producing a fantastic series of electronic music albums that combined elements of the abstract with contemporary classical, forging a truly experimental path for herself. And with that, let's begin our listen to electronic literature.
This summer, I'm going to give a class in mushroom identification at the New School for Social Research. Actually, it's five field trips, not really a class at all. However, when I proposed it to Dean Clara Meyer, though she was delighted with the idea, she said, I'll have to let you know later whether or not we'll give it. So she spoke to the president, who couldn't see why there should be a class in mushrooms at the New School. Next, she spoke to Professor McIver, who lives in Piermont. She said, what do you think about our having a mushroom class at the New School? He said, fine idea. Nothing more than mushroom identification develops the powers of observation. This remark was relayed both to the president and to me. It served to get the class into the catalog and to verbalize for me my present attitude toward music. It isn't useful, music isn't, unless it develops our powers of audition. But most musicians can't hear a single sound. They listen only to the relationship between two or more sounds. Music for them has nothing to do with their powers of audition, but only to do with their powers of observing relationships. In order to do this, they have to ignore all the crying babies, fire engines, telephone bells, coughs that happen to occur during their auditions. Actually, if you run into people who are really interested in hearing sounds, you're apt to find them fascinated by the quiet ones. Did you hear that, they will say? In 1954, when I went to Europe, I no sooner arrived in Paris than I noticed that the city was covered with posters publicizing a mushroom exhibition that was being held in the botanical gardens. That was all I needed. Off I went. When I arrived, I found myself in a large room filled with many tables upon which were displayed many species of fungi. On the hour, from a large centrally placed loudspeaker, a recorded lecture on the deadly poisonous amanitas was delivered. During this lecture, nobody in the hall moved or spoke. Each person's attention was, so to speak, riveted to the information being given. A week later, I was in Köln, in Germany, attending a concert of electronic music. There was also an audience and a large loudspeaker. However, many in the audience were dozing off, and some were talking to their neighbors. I went to a concert upstairs in town hall. The composer, whose works were being performed, had provided program notes. One of these notes was to the effect that there is too much pain in the world. <laughs> After the concert, I was walking along with the composer, and he was telling me how the performances had not been quite up to snuff. So I said, well, I enjoyed the music, but I don't agree with that program note about there being too much pain in the world. He said, 
What? Don't you think there's enough? I said, I think there's just the right amount. In 1949, Merce Cunningham and I went to Europe on a Dutch boat. As we were approaching Rotterdam, the fog became so thick that landing was delayed. To expedite matters, the customs officials came aboard the boat. Passengers formed into lines and one by one were questioned. Merce Cunningham was in one line, I was in another. I smoke a great deal, whereas he doesn't smoke at all. However, he was taking five cartons of cigarettes into Europe for me, and I had that number myself. We were both traveling through Holland to Belgium and then France, and the customs regulations vary for all those countries with regard to cigarettes. For instance, you could at that time take five cartons per person into France, but only two per person into Holland. When I got to my customs officer, all of this was clear to both of us. Out of the goodness of his heart, he was reluctant to deprive me of my three extra cartons or to charge duty on them. But he found it difficult to find an excuse for letting me off. Finally, he said, are you going to go out of Holland backwards? I said yes. He was overjoyed. Then he said, you can keep all the cigarettes. Have a good trip. I left the line and noticed that Merce Cunningham had just reached his customs officer and was having some trouble about the extra cartons. So I went over and told the official that Merce Cunningham was going to go out of Holland backwards. He was delighted. Oh, he said, in that case, there's no problem at all. About ten years ago, down at Black Mountain College during a summer session, I arranged an amateur festival of the works of Eric Satie. There were altogether 25 concerts, most of them about 30 minutes long, but a few were longer. For each one, I prepared to talk about the music which was to be heard. This was necessary because most of the people there had a German point of view, and the music I was presenting was French. Satie had little fondness for German music. He told Debussy, for instance, that what was needed was a music without any sauerkraut in it. And he remarked that the reason Beethoven was so well known was that he had a good publicity manager. So after about ten of the concerts and talks, I gave a good-sized talk about music in which I denounced Beethoven. A few days later, Patsy Lynch, now Patsy Davenport, knocked on my door and said, I think I understand what you said about Beethoven, and I think I agree. But I have a very serious question to ask you. How do you feel about Bach? <laughs> One day, I asked Schoenberg what he thought about the international situation. He said, the important thing to do is to develop foreign trade. One day while I was composing, the telephone rang. A lady's voice said, is this John Cage, the percussion composer? I said, yes. She said, this is the J. Walter Thompson Company. I didn't know what that was, but she explained that their business was advertising. She said, hold on, one of our directors wants to speak to you. During a pause, my mind went back to my composition. Then suddenly, a man's voice said, Mr. Cage, are you willing to prostitute your art? I said, yes. He said, well, bring us some samples Friday at 2. I did. After hearing a few recordings, one of the directors said to me, wait a minute. 
Then seven directors formed what looked like a football huddle. From this, one of them finally emerged, came over to me and said, you're too good for us. We're going to save you for Robinson Crusoe. One day, down at Black Mountain College, David Tudor was eating his lunch. A student came over to his table and began asking him questions. David Tudor went on eating his lunch. The student kept on asking questions. Finally, David Tudor looked at him and said, If you don't know, why do you ask? There's a street in Stony Point, in a lowland near the river, where a number of species of mushrooms grow abundantly. I visit this street often. A few years ago in May, I found the morel there, a choice mushroom which is rare around Rockland County. I was delighted. None of the people living on this street ever talk to me while I'm collecting mushrooms. Sometimes children come over and kick at them before I get to them. Well, the year after I found the morel, I went back in May expecting to find it again, only to discover that a cinder block house had been put up where the mushroom had been growing. As I looked at the changed land, all the people in the neighborhood came out on their porches. One of them said, Ha ha, your mushrooms are gone. A composer friend of mine who spent some time in a mental rehabilitation center was encouraged to do a good deal of bridge playing. After one game, his partner was criticizing his play of an ace on a trick which had already been won. My friend stood up and said, If you think I came to the loony bin to learn to play bridge, you're crazy. Once I was visiting my Aunt Marge. She was doing her laundry. Is that the help? What you got? Oh, 
family symbolizing purity. Jackie Jack, His house about him with invariable gods stretched cheap and delicate families. At one time, annoying a sea earwicker. Jesse's ripe occasion, our cadem, villa bleach, vala pluck, thick up for flesh, Nelly, Guinness thaw tool in Jumi dinner, oozle thin. A nice how do you do in pool Jurgensen's shrapnel communism and commutative justice that there is not one tittle of hyper-tituitary And Link Boy's medals cross Eblin's chilled hamlet, subjects of a house of call at Kuya's place, old socks hold by setting matches to the Join that big variety. Add students after taking their Jail of Mount Joy, jail him and joy. He was sick seven dry Sundays a week. Jolting back on thought his Jill began to mold and stench of 
His Manchester's voice has They slouch back. Now, soldiers, march away. And how thou pleasest, God, dispose the day. of Orléans and Bourbon and the Dauphin realize that they have lost the day. Oh, dear. After my vie, all is confounded, all reproach and everlasting shame sits mocking in our plumes. Oh, Meshant, fortune, do not run away. Why, all our ranks are broke. Oh, perjurable shame. Let's stab ourselves. Be these the wretches that we played a dice for. Is this the king we sent to for his ransom? Shame and eternal shame, nothing but shame. Let us die in honor. Once more back again. And he that will not follow Bourbon now, let him go hence. And with his cap in hand, like a base panda, hold the chamber door, whilst by a slave, no gentler than my dog, his fairest daughter is contaminated. Disorder that hath spoiled us, friend us now. Let us on heaps go offer up our lives. We are in now yet living in the field to smother up the English in our throngs. If any order might be thought of. The devil take order now. 
out of the throng. Let life be short, else shame will be too long.
to nothing. Your body is the shoreline. Sometimes I am the sea, clinging almost desperately, feeling all the contours, ebbing away, pulled by the tides, the moon, and digital clocks, sensitive to nothing. Parting hours, time falls through our fingers like sand. Inside the eyes of the face upon the mirror, 
imperceptibly pass from reddish-brown to bright yellow. They are waylit by crystals appearing as lighted globes. They continue through the lava gallery, which gently sloped until they reached the intersection of two roads. Without hesitation, Professor Liddenbrook chose the eastern tunnel, and the journey continued through a succession of arches appearing before them as if they were the aisles of a Gothic cathedral. The walls were enhanced with impressions of rock weeds and mosses from the Silurian Epoch. The eastern route they had taken had come to a dead end. 
With three days' walk back to the fork to find Arne Saknussem's original route, they found their water rations were limited to one day. Knowing their only chance of finding water was on that route, they set off for the fork, and there, finally, they fell, almost lifeless, on the third day. After sleep, they continued down the other tunnel in their quest for water, and while searching on his own, Hans the guide heard the sound of water thundering behind a granite wall, and with a pickaxe, attacked the wall so as to allow a stream of boiling water to enter and cool in their tunnel. Not only had they found life in the water, but they'd also found a flowing guide to the center of the earth. They called the stream the Hansbach. Replenished with the water, the journey continued with haste, but somehow they find themselves separated. Professor Lidenbrook's nephew, Axel, found himself alone. 
His mind was seized with unparalleled fear and he saw memories of home flashing before him. His fiancée, Graubel, his house and friends in Hamburg. He saw hallucinations of all the incidents of the journey. And unworthy as he felt, he knelt in fervent prayer and then in panic, he ran blindly through a tunnel only to reach a dead end where he fell panting for breath. In the darkness he cried, voices, 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 he heard voices. He heard his uncle's voice. Due to the shape of the gallery and the conducting power of the rocks, his uncle's voice was uncannily traveling around the walls. And by means of their chronometers, they discovered they were four miles apart. So Axel set about the task of rejoining the professor and their guide.
we often take the train and show our friends Gleisteinig. We get off and count the tracks on our fingers. show our friends Gleisdreieck. We get off and count the tracks on our fingers. We often take the train and show our friends Gleisdreieck. ziehen von Ost nach West. Nein, Mann! Bleib hier! Was wirst du drüben? Thank you. 
I am the storm of dawn, the swirl of 10,000 upon 10,000 times, clear in the black calm, in emptiness lingering, waiting, slowly moving, reaching, never changing, sun and star, born and not born, life and not life. The emptiness cries, weeping, cries out for the dawn, and cries not. Born and dying cries. Open your eyes, now we hear. Green the flash, and red the storm searching. Here we have been. Still in our dreaming, a far quiet place we once knew we may remember before.
quivering arm does into a target. Pleasure will vanish like a cloud over the horizon, like a silver vanishing into the wings of a stage. Each moment is devouring some portion of that delight which is granted to every man for his season of existence.
That was a lot of material. I hope you benefited from the contrasting styles of electronic music made for literature. I invite you to explore each of these artists further. Please see my playlist on the podcast website for a complete listing of all the music heard in this episode. If you would like to know more about the history of electronic music, please read my book, Electronic and Experimental Music, 6th edition, published by Routledge. And now, for the archive mix in which I play two tracks at the same time to see what happens. The first track is by Lily Grenham, ABC in Sound, which is a poem by poet Bob Cobbing. This was recorded in 1968. The second track is by Arif Marden, and it's The Prophet, an excerpt from side one from the album called The Prophet. The narrator is Richard Harris. Keyboards are by Bob James, Pat Rebelo, and Ken Mitchell using the ARP 2600 synthesizer. The poetry is by Khalil Gibran. And when you crush an apple with your teeth, sound poetry, your heart, your seeds shall live in my body. This is an idiot. The buds of your tomorrow shall blossom in my heart. And your fragrance shall be my breath, and together we shall rejoice through all the seasons. And the weaver says, speak to us of the And though you seek in garments the freedom of privacy, you may find... Boom, 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 best. Boom, best. That you put me on fire. On, 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 on fire. Boom, best. On fire. The breath of life boom, is best. in the sunlight. Phoebus. And the hand of <laughs> Some of you say it is the north wind who has grown the place. Please, sir, please, sir. Ring it down, ring it down. Tack, 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 tack. Gros temps, gros temps, gros and when you walk with forget not that modesty is for the shield against the eye of the unclean. And when the unclean shall be no more, what were modesty? And forget that the earth delights to feel your grin the winds long to play grin grin then a plowman said speak to us of work and the answer said you work that you may keep pace with the earth and the soul of the earth or to be idle become a stranger unto the sea that marches and manages When you were a flute through whose heart the whistling of the hours turns to music. All of the music heard in this podcast, unless otherwise indicated, is brought to you from the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music, a curated collection of vintage recordings. 
For a complete playlist, go to theholmesarchive.podbean.com. All crackles, surface noise, and other imperfections heard in this podcast are purely intentional. All intro, outro, and other incidental music is by Tom Holmes, unless otherwise noted in the playlist. For notes about this episode, please see the blog Noise and Notations at TomHolmes.com. So long from deep inside the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music.